Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Dual Access Podcast. I know I've been on a hiatus for a long time, but I do have a good excuse. I finished an Ironman last Saturday, and that was taking up all of my available time. But I am happy to announce that I have a very special guest today. Before that, my name is Andy Creeble. I'm the global head coach of the Data School, and I created this podcast to help introduce you to interesting people. I've been focusing primarily on data, but I'm going to be changing things up a bit soon and talking to um, to dads. And uh, I'm trying to branch out into helping dads uh, with their careers and their uh, work life balance and things like that. So I'm going to be bringing in some people in that perspective, in, in that angle as well. So Alan, I didn't put those questions on here, but we might talk about that as well. So. Um, <laughs> But today I am talking with Alan Smith, OBE. Do I have to call you OBE, by the way? Definitely not, no. Okay, okay. <laughs> and I'm going to ask you to explain what that is. But uh, if you don't know Alan, he's the head of visual and data journalism at the Financial Times. So I'm sure all of us, especially if you're listening to this podcast, have seen some of the great graphics that are created in the Financial Times. Well, that's Alan's team that's responsible for those things. Um and he's one of the most influential people in, in the space of data. He probably won't say that, but he is. Um, he created the Financial Times Visual Vocabulary, which I reproduced in Tableau. And we'll talk a bit about that as well, because I had a chance to, um, they, they invited me over to speak about it, which was like, I was incredibly awed and, and, and all that. But he also has a TED Talk called uh, Why You Should Love Statistics that's been viewed over 2 million times. So definitely the most famous TED Talker I've ever spoken to. In fact, probably the only TED Talker. So uh, so you're automatically at the top then. So. <laughs> and he's rec- recently published the book, How Charts Work. It's available on Amazon. And actually, let me go ahead and, and pop a link into the chat if anybody wants to order the book. Um, I'll just stick that in the chat here. And oh, and now my screen changed size. Okay, there we go. Uh, so if you want to order that on Amazon, it's a it's a great um, great book. I've read parts of it so far. I haven't gotten into the the nitty gritty of the the, the different chart sections because I think I'm going to be pretty pretty familiar with those sections. But um, so we're going to talk about the book a little bit as well. Okay, so Alan, uh, thank you for joining me today. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Andy. It's been a long yeah. time since we talked. Yeah, it had 2018, I think. Uh, but, you know, it's when, when I'm thinking about guests for the podcast, I'm like, I've got these aspirations for bringing in these like really famous people, but I'm afraid to ask them, which is really unusual for me because I'm like, you know, what's the worst they're going to say? No. And so it's, uh, you know, finally, um, you know, when when somebody let me know that you had you had mentioned me in your book, I was like, oh, I should reach out to him. And then here we are. So only a couple of weeks later. So thank you for for making the time today. Um, so I'm just going to hop right into it and talk a bit about your team. So you and your team created the visual vocabulary back in 2016, I believe. Um, yeah. Why did you see a need for it? Uh, I mean, I think that's a really good question for all sorts of reasons, partly to do with the fact. So if I rewind back a year before then, that's when I joined mm-hmm. the FT. Right. So um, just in terms of my backstory, uh, I've not worked in newsrooms all my life. Um, I spent 18 years at the UK's statistics office um, working in and around data visualization. Um, when I joined the FT, 
I think the challenge was, so firstly, my role at the FT when I first joined was data visualization editor, which I thought was like a really cool thing, right? Like that newspaper suddenly needed a data viz editor. And, You're like, whoa, you know, what's going on in this world? Yeah. Know, right? Like, so having survived since 1888 without one, that now yeah. data viz's moment had arrived. <laughs> um, and, but it became clear that when you're working in a large organization like the FT, and you, you're kind of responsible for upping the chart game, that yeah. what you really want to do is to kind of increase chart literacy right across the organization. So the goal with the FT's visual vocabulary really was to try and improve the starting point for conversations around data and data presentation in the newsroom. And okay. in a very subtle way, I can kind of summarize it as thus is that traditionally what happens in newsrooms is that maybe someone will come, an editor will come over to the graphics desk and say, you know, you know, I, I, I want a pie chart, right? Or something like that. And, you know, maybe the question that goes with that is what do you want? Right? What do you want? I want a pie chart. Um, what we really wanted to try and just change the question a little bit from what do you want to what do you want to show and just adding those two little Very words subtle. Here, yeah show what do you want to show then the conversation can kind of well i want to show the surge in net migration between these two periods and suddenly you're in a conversation about patterns and relationships and data and so um that was really the goal of the visual vocab and luckily for us i mean it, we, we on the poster if you if you look at the the ft's visual vocab poster we're quite open about the fact that it was inspired by john schwabish's excellent graphic continuum which i yep. think was the great sort of taxonomy of of different types of data viz like it's almost like the data viz you should have learned when you were at school rather than when you were a uh, you know responsible for data visualization in large organizations but yeah um I think the only thing that I kind of thought with that sort of taxonomy is it pays to adapt it a little bit to the organizational context, right? Like, so, and I, I kind of, it's been really great to see people use the visual vocabulary for, for all sorts of reasons, but I like to think that people are just adapting it all the time so that it just makes sense in their own mm. organizations, right? But that's why we, we created it. It was a chart literacy tool and it, that's why it was deliberately like a poster, not a big website or some big interactive sort of learning tool. It was just a big old poster that we put up in the office and made people stand in front of it and have conversations. In in the book, you talk about the kind of process of, you know, uh, was it going to be on a screen or did it? And, and you came up with the idea of saying you wanted it to be this giant poster that was on the wall. So why one versus the other? And was that a good decision? Um, I mean, I, I think it was uh, it, it was a really good decision for us at the time. I actually think it's a good decision, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Like because it really helped socialize chart design, and, and I can't I can't stress this enough. I mean, I wonder. I'm interested to know from you whether you find it the same at the sort of uh, in the sessions that you do. That when I talk to people in classes that I run on data visualization it soon becomes clear that lots of people see chart design as this sort of solitary activity that has to be sort of suffered, right? Like, you know, you have to go away and come up with the ideal chart and then come back with yeah. it. And what we really liked about having a big poster where we could basically just stand in front of it and point and talk about things was that it kind of encouraged this sort of iterative conversation from the start, right? Before you'd even done anything with a spreadsheet or, you know, before you'd actually got hands-on with data, just started to talk a little bit about 
what are we really trying to achieve here? And to do that just with a conversation was a really nice thing to do. I think it's the moment we ask people to lean forward and start doing things uh, on a computer, um, then that dynamic changes a little bit. You know, you, you kind of, you have to change the, the, the interaction to accommodate a clunky piece of technology. And I didn't really want to do that. Mm. So when somebody comes up to you, uh, maybe one of the reporters, and, and they need a graphic to, to supplement their articles, um, you know, you'll go through that question of what do you want to show? And you go through that conversation, and maybe it turns into, okay, well, you look like you want to show the change between something or the differences between things. Is that Do you then, like, literally take them up to the poster and say, okay, this is the kind of uh, – um, this is the sort of uh, – um, category of data that we're looking at and these are the typical options that we go with and do you is that how the discussion evolves um, i think that's how it certainly started right like and, and like when i say evolving chart literacy the first phase of that is introducing people to just this wider i mean we very deliberately called it vocabulary um, it was martin Schaber, my colleague who, who suggested that because it's kind of hinting at the fact that there's a grammar to the use of graphics in the same way that a news organization like the FT takes the quality of the writing very seriously, that we wanted something to reinforce that, that there's a grammar to these graphics that, 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 you know, we can internalize. And I think that's exactly what happened over time. We've had some developments in chart literacy where people have become much more aware across the newsroom of different types of charts. And I can think of one specific early example of this that really made me sort of inwardly kind of shout with joy uh, was um, so like people had never heard of things like Sankey diagrams before, for example. And yet, so some of the early winners in the use of the visual vocabulary were things like Sankey charts and slope charts and these things that now are everywhere. But at the time, even just a few years ago, weren't particularly prevalent. Um, but we we showed things like Sankey diagrams as great visual devices for showing changing voter flows uh, between elections, for example. And we got people realizing that there's a name for that sort of chart. And I think the names of charts is quite important because that mm. really helps the conversation. If you can say, hey, what about a Sankey chart? That's a much more elegant question than what about that wavy, wobbly shape <laughs> thing that was pretty, you know, like so the names were good. And what really gave us a lot of uh, happiness was that one morning at the the editor's morning conference, we go around all of the different desks of the FT talking about stories of the day. Somebody on the world desk was talking about an election. I think it might have been in Germany. And just suddenly, apropos of nothing, said, hey, it might be a pop- opportunity for a Sankey diagram. And instantly I thought, this is different now. You're like, right? whoa. <laughs> it would never have happened a year ago. No one yeah. randomly from another part of the newsroom would say, what about a Sankey diagram? And it was just evidence that we were starting to get through to people. So going back to your question, now it's not so much like a let's all walk over to the wall and see the thing. Because I think what's happened is it's, it's been internalized a bit more. The range of charts that we're capable of producing, people trust us with it and know what we're after you know we want to know what we're trying to show not uh you know take a kind of rote uh a kind of rote instruction to just deliver something um so it has shifted in that respect definitely and and i guess that helped because during the pandemic nobody can stand in front of things during uh, lockdown so that kind of stood us in good stead. Yeah. <laughs> and the from when i first saw it in 2016 to now it's evolved a bit as well right so some yeah. of the charts have come out some have been added 
Uh, is that a process you plan to keep going through, or how do you decide when to when to mix it up a bit? Yeah, so I mean, I think my intention originally was this: this is almost like a reader contract. It's almost like a sort of a, a visual thesaurus of the sorts of charts mm-hmm. that readers could expect to see regularly. Okay. So on the vocabulary, if you look at the descriptions, it kind of sort of there's a little thing. One one difference with the graphic continuum is the fact that it, there's a little bit of guidance text for what might be good or bad about this kind of chart, and also what kinds of FT stories would we use it in. Right. And so in 2016, when we made it, it was kind of like this is our first go at this. This is our first bit of understanding about whether this works. And and my idea was that over time, we would gradually evolve it. That, 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 that might be because it wasn't like every chart you can think of, because there were some things that we didn't include. And there was one, I think, in particular, the sunburst chart we took off, because we tried a one. And it just didn't really work. And, and readers were a little bit and, and it's not to say we never produce a sunburst diagram but like we were sort of saying look let's be careful and and kind of think about how to use it but conversely some chart types like you know we use a chord diagram occasionally Mm -hmm. quite a complex chart type um but we had a very very strong use case for it that we'd kind of identified we thought there's a particular type of reporting that we do on mergers and acquisitions that would be just brilliant with this type of diagram and it was really great to test that idea out and see what readers thought of it. And they came back and, and I said, like, if they hate it, we'll take it off, right? But they didn't. They liked it a lot. And um, so it was good. It was kind of like a, so the idea is to keep it up to date, I suppose, but just for it to reflect how we feel we're doing with our chart making, yeah. So that leads me then to the next question of, of why isn't it exhaustive of all chart types? Or, well, you can't probably do all chart types, but... You know, it, it's an it's an intentionally limited set of charts. Is yeah, that simply absolutely. because you're trying to take your audience into account and say we're pretty sure these are charts they're going to understand quickly? So it's a combination of two things. I think. I think what I wanted was a range of chart types that on it that showed people that there was a much bigger language for for data viz out there than they were probably already aware of right so so we wanted to expand that that kind of vocabulary but in terms of why isn't it every chart there's two reasons one i think because some charts i just can't imagine us making regularly at the ft based on our understanding of our audience but also i think if you do go down there this is everything you could possibly make i mean i don't think you'd even get to that point because there is always infinite variation in it yeah. i think it just could become a little bit overwhelming yeah. And I think now most people would probably in the FT look at the visual vocab and think, yeah, I've seen most of that stuff now. Yeah. I'm familiar with it. It's it's not overwhelming. And that and I think that's the sweet spot to get to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's that's great. And so you created this internally. Why did you decide to share it with the public? So you put it on it's and I put the I put the link in the chat here. You can get it off of uh, GitHub. Um, why did you decide to make that public? Um, for, for a few reasons. I mean, one, we thought it would be a really, firstly, we thought it would be a nice thing to share with readers right, of the FT, just to let them know that this is how we were thinking about DataViz and that we were taking it seriously. But the more and more I started talking to other people about this and, and, and talking to people both in the DataViz community, but also outside of it. Um, it seemed to me that lots of people were struggling with the same problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it was, the, the issue with the FT was that this is a big old organization that does amazing stuff, but has, you know, never discreetly had a sort of data viz strategy, for mm-hmm. example. 
So any, I mean, how many people are in that position? They're in big organizations wanting to just up the, the data viz game. And so we thought, well, if we share what we've done with other people, it will be interesting to see what they make of it. And at the time, I was writing a series of articles for the FT on data visualization in our work and careers section, which is so it was really just kind of uh, uh, an extension of that. Um, I wrote a little bit about our data viz strategy, and then I just I, I just published the visual vocabulary publicly as a part of that, just to share it with readers and mm. to see what they think. Um, and the feedback was just really amazing, actually, that people were just said, oh, this is great. And um, we have all sorts of amusing stories about where it's ended up. I mean, I think it's actually ended up in a lot of other newsrooms. Um, most of them. Yeah, yeah great. Uh, most of them very graciously, although someone did say they were in a newsroom once where someone had torn the FT logo off the bottom right hand corner of it. Must be a competitor of yours. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. And, uh, you know, no names, no patrol. But, uh, but it was really interesting to see that, that people were yeah. like, yeah, this is a resource that we could have done for so long. And so that kind of explains the journey as well into the book, which as, as much as anything is almost like, sort of biography of maybe that five-year period from starting mm. the vocabulary through to the first stage of the pandemic and kind of how how our data has evolved over that period mm-hmm. um, and so that's how that all came together yeah and it's broken up into nine sections so in in the book you go through you talk about the visual vocabulary overall there's a picture of it in there but then you go into each of the nine categories and kind of a uh, you go deep into each of those sections. Do you intend people to read that cover cover uh, and then use it as a reference guide? What was your thinking when you were writing the book? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the starting point with the book, obviously, was the visual vocabulary. And in fact, in some ways, it was nothing more ambitious than I haven't got enough space on the poster to write everything I want about these different types of charts. So how about we write a chapter for every column on the poster right. and sprinkle it with examples of where we've done it at the FT. Right. right. So, and, and in fact, that was for me a big part of the justification for the book, because actually, you know, as well as I do, there's been some really, really great books on data yeah. that's come out recently. And, and I, I, it's not, it, you know, it's not an academic text. It's not, um, it, it's, it, you know, there's far better texts for certain uh, kind of uh, elements of what you want to do in DataViz. But what I thought would be really interesting would be to just document how one organization has basically mm-hmm. launched this poster and used it to change its, the way that it produces graphics and the way that those graphics tell the stories that, that we want to tell. So, um, it, and as much as anything else, it ended up being fun to just do an audit, right, of everything that we published and sort of said, have we really done all of these different graphics on flow and deviation and change over time and magnitude? And it turned out we had, right? Like it was really good fun going through the archives because news moves so fast that within six months or a year, you've forgotten about what you were doing, you know, and it was quite a fun experience to go back over what has been a very eventful period <laughs> and sort of reassess just how useful our visuals had been during that period. Yeah. And when, when, when I had the opportunity to come over and speak with your team, you know, I, I just finished working on the, um, the Tableau version of the visual vocabulary. And I don't remember if you had heard that and that's why I got invited or not. I don't remember the reason I got invited, but I was like, yes, I'm going. I don't know why, but yes, I'm going. Well, we could have, we could have invited you for loads of reasons, um, of which <laughs> we're well aware of you, the, the visual vocab tableau edition as well that was just one thing i thought well we've got to hear about that yeah yeah but that's that 
the, when when you published that, I, that really spoke very loudly to me about several things. One is, you know, the visual vocabulary itself is just a poster, right? So right. It's, it's not in any way a resource for making charts or or, or kind of the tech of, of scaffolding charts or whatever. And I, I, I thought in some ways that was the most important starting place was to not start with a piece of software right. where you're instantly in the world of, well, no matter how good this software is, I'm going to be constrained at some stage by what it can or can't yeah. do. Yeah. So it would be good to start off a data viz strategy thinking about just what do we want to do, right? Like what sort of yeah. graphics do we want to make? And then retrospectively think about how we were going to make them. So what was really interesting at the FT, our solution to this was, um, you know, we we got hold of, we, we wrote some D3 code. We rewrote a whole bunch of D3 templates that allowed us to spin out online and print styled versions of our charts mm-hmm. with the notion that we didn't really want it to be any longer to make a chord diagram than a pie chart, right? Like mm-hmm. that once you know what kind of chart you want, you should be able to spin it up. Um, but of course, that's not going to work for everyone, right? Like not everyone's going to want to launch into custom D3 code and unpick D3 styling. So when I saw your Tableau workbook, I thought, ah, oh, this is interesting for several reasons. One, because it shows that the visual vocab seems to be of broader interest and, and kind of reuse, but also the fact that it's a challenge for all the software tools out there to see how far this through this thing that you can get. And I think you had some fun, didn't you, Andy, in terms of like, some of them were easier than others, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was really fun because uh, there were lots of the charts I'd never built before and I knew the use cases for them. Um, but I tend to stick with like really simple things because that's what I feel like I'm good at. Um, and, you know, the complex things all have their case but uh, it gave me an excuse to learn those sorts of things. So, you know, I used it as a way to use my work time, uh, which was great because my company was very supportive of me uh, of me um, creating that. Uh, and then, you know, using that as a learning experience and then sharing it with the community, which is another thing that we really believe in in our company. And now there's canvases across around the office that have each of the nine um, pages of it the, from uh, from mine. Uh, on the on the wall and people are doing like like uh, like you were seeing early on with your visual vocabulary when they're stuck for ideas they go look at those and and uh, decide how they you know is this the right chart and it's like it's really satisfying I guess that you know the work you put into it is being being used by other people but after you know there there it's also been recreated in Power BI and uh, Vega I believe um, and a couple other tools how do you have any insight onto how you know these being these being um, created in different pieces of software? How that's helped people communicate with data? Are they being used a lot? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the thing that's really interesting is that what, by two things have happened. One of the things that I was really interested was to see you know, some software vendors start to talk about the visual vocabulary mm. and how you can use their software to to help implement it. And I thought that's a really nice way around to be working this stuff, right? Is to, it's like I say, to not have the situation where a software vendor says, right, there you go, that's what you can do, go off and use it. But to actually think, you know, how do we adapt using our software to take into account something that's come from the community in terms of what people want to produce? So I mean, I loved seeing all the different iterations of it because, of course, they come from such different dimensions. I mean, I think Tableau and Power BI, um, Click, um, there's there's an R subset. John Schwabish has got an Excel pack available. Yeah, um, It was great to see all of these different sort of software-based 
versions of it that because you are starting to see like like i say common you know you mention the vocabulary and people kind of know what you're talking about specific parts from within it people know what those charts are and know what they mean Mm -hmm. i think certainly helped with some of that conversation around chart literacy I'd, i'd like to think yeah 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 um i had a really good question and now i've forgotten what it is while you're into it, something I'm going to go back to as well, because I think also one of the risks of something like the vocabulary, there's, there's two risks that I'm sort of conscious of. One is that people think, ah, oh, because we've got all of these crazy new chart types, that suddenly everything has to be crazy and more complex than it yeah. needs to be. I mean, the point I would say is that I think 90% of the charts that we publish at the FT are still line and bar yeah. charts that are just hopefully really purposeful and meaningful yeah, with yeah. good kind of design and layout, but just relatively straightforward chart types. Um, but that we reserve the right to use that are sort of more, the more sort of esoteric or less well-known charts when there's a specific case to do it. Mm-hmm. So, In the case of the chord diagram in the book, there's the example where I said, right, okay. If you're one of those people who thinks that only line bar and pie charts can be used to show this data, this particular data set would require 14 pie charts to visualize. Right. And and if you think 14 pie charts is the answer to any database <laughs> kind of design problem, then that's probably wrong. Um, and, and so it was very important for me to have some, some examples and some instances where you justified stretching the reader a bit more. Right. Mm-hmm. And FT readers are, they're, they're great. We love them. And they're very, very good with their feedback. If you've made it more difficult for them than they think it needs to be, they'll let you know. Right. And so I think that's an important point. Yeah. The One of the things that... So what I enjoyed the most that we talked about was I enjoyed the learning process of going through and building it because you know I just learned so much. So when people... I used to have to lock it down inside a Tableau and not let people download it because um, people were re-uploading it, changing my name, and putting it up as their own. Um, so I had to, you know, I basically sit in there, hey, if you want it, you know, you need to email me and I'm happy to give it to you. Um, but anytime somebody would email me, that all they want is just to be able to plug and play. And I would tell them, why don't you go off? I've pri- provided all the resources here. Um, you go off and build these. And then once you've done that, send me a link to it and I'll send you mine. Um, because I want them to learn. Guess how many people wrote me back? expecting a low number it's 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 exactly zero nobody has ever written me back that they've actually gone and built it and i i think they just don't understand maybe it's just my brain works a bit different you know i i want to use these things as a as a learning experience but it's now downloadable again um and i have the tableau public team is doing a better job of of finding those that have been um re-uploaded and deleting those so um so it got a bit frustrating at, at, at the time. Yeah. Um, so when we talk about, so you, you talked about um, uh, when you would have somebody from the newsroom come speak to you about the, um, uh, about the article. So if I understand it right, the article always comes before the chart. Is that right? Or do you, how do you decide which, which should be the focus, the chart in the article or the article itself, the written part of the article? Oh, now that is a question that gets right to the heart of journalism, right? So, uh, and how it works. Uh, I think it's fair to say that there is a traditional model for newsroom workflow that involves editor commissioning story that reporter writes, 
editor edits that story and requests graphics to go inside the story, right? That's the conventional workflow model. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that I, the process that I described to you early on with the visual vocab was compatible and is compatible with that model, right? Mm-hmm. Press for time because we're just about to publish this story. Can we have a chart that shows exactly what we're writing about in terms of immigration in this story or about this particular financial story that we're running, right? So it's compatible with that model. But as part of the chart literacy sessions that we ran in the newsroom, one of the messages that we really wanted to try and, and kind of push through was some stories can start with the chart, right? Mm-hmm. Both in terms of the layout of the story, right? There's no reason why you couldn't just have the start rather than a big block of text at the, at the start, but also just in terms of the the genesis of the story. And we, you know, we were very keen to quickly latch on to examples where that was the case. And then I think, um, and so what we were trying to do there for, and, and still are, is to encourage reporters at the FT to talk to our visual and data journalists early on in their mm-hmm. reporting process, kind of when they're still in question mode, right? Like when they're actually dealing with the topic that they're trying to, to, to kind of uh, address mm-hmm. rather than as a sort of decoration exercise. Because I think that's one of the reasons why we ended up needing the vocabulary in the first place is that people were decorating with data rather than designing with data. Mm-hmm. And that's at its most powerful, I think, when you're using data as an integral part of the reporting. Now, the thing that really worked in our favour for that, I think, was something like the pandemic, right? Because, for the, you know, I'd spent a lot of time talking to the FT's board, sort of saying, hey, you know what, the future of journalism is data. And, you know, everyone's nodding, going, well, of course you would say that, Alan. You know, thanks very much for that. You're very biased, yeah. <laughs> now I'm trying to say, I told you so, because, yeah. like, you think about something like COVID, there's no way that you could have really covered that story properly without making data journalism central yeah. to your reporting network. And luckily for us, we've got some brilliant journalists of which, you know, uh, John Byrne Murdoch, I'm sure will be known to, to most people as someone who really latched on to using data to, to, to find the story in the first place and then to use visuals to tell it. Um for a lot of journalists, that's a completely new way of working. But it's one that clearly works for us at the FT because it allows us to explain the world more clearly and more accurately. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's really fascinating how that works. I remember there's a couple of stories I've seen with the FT where it's very clear that the that the charts were driving the story because you scroll down and the charts like gradually change as you go through maybe time or something like that to to show the progression of things, but. The charts are clearly the focus of of the story, uh, and then. But I guess it's is it different for print versus online? Um, so our print model is slightly different. So with print, the role of print, we still love print as a as a visuals person. I still love having print as a as a design challenge for us. Um, partly because unlike online, I don't have to worry about what things look like on a sort of three inch screen. You know, we're still a broadsheet yeah. paper, and you can make things big. Um, but really, the sort of anything in print is really almost like the the best of online and so we've already been through the design process first for online so it's it's very much an online first workflow with a consideration for how we might adapt that story for print and if it's a visual story there's all sorts of things that you could do i mean when we run visual stories for example with interactive elements on them we might even just put a qr code on the printed page so like you get a 
a kind of summary graphic in right, print right. where you can then point your phone to go and, and kind of see the um to see the uh to see the sort of full version yeah i'm just gonna stick a link in the chat actually um to, to uh, speaking to what we were just talking about that there was a piece that we did as part of the um I think this is free to read, actually. So I think the, the, the link should be good for most people. Um, how do I to the chat on here? If you uh, click on the little uh, little chat bubble next to the two heads, see the people with two heads should be on the right on your right hand side next to the next to the videos. I don't know. I can't. Uh, I can't see that on my screen. I wonder if I can just ping you, Andy. I don't know if you yeah, can. yeah, it's fine. Yeah, just message it to me. Um, but this this story, we did a piece like halfway through the pandemic, almost like the end of the first phase of the mm-hmm. pandemic, where it was about the sort of explaining the crisis in terms of data. And one of the things I think that was interesting about this was we did this. You'll see that the credit on this piece mm-hmm. is for the FT Visual and Data Journalism team. So this was in, produced entirely within the Visual and Data uh, uh, group, which is great because we've got a lovely, talented team of sort of interdisciplinary skills, and that all comes out in this piece. But the the way that this piece is structured, you can kind of see that it's it's kind of chapters of paradoxes. You know, how come this, given that? How come this, given that? And it's kind of chronological as well, so it kind of unfolds as you're going down through it. Explains what was going on. But the, the thing that I'd kind of point out about this piece, which I think was really interesting, was that the first thing produced for this piece was all of the graphics. And then mm. we wrote we wrote around the graphics. And I think you can tell when you are reading it that that was what happened because the relationship between the text and the graphics is much tighter. You can imagine that, can't you, right? That if somebody just yeah. writes a thousand words and then someone kind of lobs in a pie chart or a bar chart just to break up the paragraphs it's not going to be as tightly integrated as something where you you've kind of said mm. right these graphics tell the story and now i'm going to write the text that fills in the gaps between them um and so that piece in particular we i was very pleased with that piece because i think it kind of was a very um good example of the sort of journalism that mm. we want to do more of and and subsequently to this piece publishing um, we ended up creating a dedicated team within visual and data called our visual storytelling team, who's remit to do this sort of stuff all the time, right? Either on their own or working with our other reporters to take topics and make them visual and data first from the outset. Mm-hmm. And we just seem to really like that. And I've, I've put the link in, in the chat now um, and I was just scrolling through it and I hadn't seen this before. It's, it's a really incredible piece of work. Um, how long does something like that take? So I this mean, was really it like it would take like years. Yeah, <laughs> it was probably a couple of months in development. Okay, I think. probably two or three months. Because of course the the thing that was difficult with a piece like this was that the pandemic was still evolving while we were doing it. So it's not like you know at the outset everything that you're going to need, to, need yeah. to know about the story by the time that it, it finished. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, a lot of it made use of things that we'd learned throughout the course of the pandemic anyway. So if you like, okay. a lot of the research elements, a lot of the paradoxes that we ended up writing about, like, for example, like, when is a COVID death a COVID death? These were questions we'd had to sort of answer in some way or another mm-hmm. during the reporting period. Um, and so in terms of pulling the story together, a lot of it was about, like, what makes a logical narrative from all these things that we've learned 
during the pandemic. And we ended up kind of doing it in chronological and geographical sort of order. Um, but it was it was a very good way of showing how data can just drive that reporting process and deliver a piece of content that a regular newsroom would find very difficult to produce. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, you know, when I'm looking at graphics around the internet, um, I know exactly when I see something if it's done by the FT. Um, so you have a you have a very consistent style, a very um, de- I, I would say probably deliberate style, some really you know deliberate design principles. Why are those important to you and the team? Um, I mean, I think for a whole lot of reasons. Um, there's certainly an element, as you've explained with your Tableau workbook, right? Like there's a certain degree of provenance that's a good thing to get, right? So that I like it when people say that they can recognize the FT's graphic because it means we're doing something that sets it in one way or another apart mm. from other from other pieces of work. Um, I think the consistency is good for readers as well, right? So th- I have to say that consistency, the consistency we strive for is not just in what colours and fonts are you using, because that's one very different way of achieving consistency. Um, but it's also in things like how do you use titles on charts and achieving a sort of so you'll see for example that most ft charts have very narrative lead titles that explain what you're about to see Mm. then we use the subtitle in a very consistent way to explain sort of units and metrics and we obviously also use annotations quite a lot as well to point at things and explain what's going on so just in terms of using charts as narrative devices it's nice to have some consistent principles about how you're going to apply it. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I write about some of them in the book, right? I, th- I think the text layer in particular is really interesting because at one point, one of the changes we made was to basically say, right, you know, people who make graphics, it's up to you to draft a title for this graphic because then that shows that you understand what it is that we're trying to show. Yeah. And and in doing that, we realized, hang on, most people who do graphics aren't very confident writing tech so we got the person at the ft who who runs a a headline writing course to come Mm. in and run a headline writing course for the graphics team which like a bit odd um but it was great because it kind of let you know that rather than graphics trying to take over the ft newsroom right which is because you can kind of think about it in some ways that like if somebody's come into the world of journalism because they love print and they love writing that it might feel a little bit intimidating to suddenly have this these new kids on the block come in and say, hey, it's all digital, online and visual, right? And what I really wanted us to do was to say, well, actually, you know what? There's a lot that we should be learning from other parts of the newsroom in particular, like how to write well, how to how to mm. how recognize a good headline, how to be able to, to kind of uh, structure narrative. Um, and so it was really nice to be able to do that. And so people who ran the headline writing courses came over and did some sessions with us. And I think both sites found that really, really useful and interesting. Yeah. Uh, the couple other, I, I don't know if you've influenced these organizations or it just happens to be at the same time, but the economist and the guardian are two other ones that I can immediately tell where they're, where, you know, that they're, their graphics. So the economist, I believe they always have that like blue stripe on the side. Um, if I'm right. Uh, but again, it's another way that they've differentiated themselves from, you know, other, other groups. So, you know, the FT is kind of known for that like burgundy ish color, that reddish color, 
where the economist is more bright red and blue, right? Um, and you know, everybody's familiar with the kind of pink background of, uh, or not pink, it's a like yellowish sort of background, whatever that color is, it is the background of the FT. You yeah. know, when you, uh, uh, it's, so it's, it's, it's salmon pink, right? And salmon I'm going give you the hex code. So, I mean, I think it's, that's a really interesting thing that just talks to brand in some ways, you know, like yeah. most people in the UK would know that the FT is this kind of pink printed newspaper for very historical reasons. It's pink, you, you know, to do with when it was uh, printed, you know, a hundred years ago or so and, and the sorts of paper that were suitable for printing at that time. Um, but obviously the website now carries that branding. And I think the thing that's really funny about that now is people recognize and associate that color with our online content as much as anything else. And my favorite thing was the story that somebody was talking to a someone in California, I think, about the FT. And mm-hmm. they said, oh, yeah, I've just got one question for you. Why why is your website pink? And, and the answer was like, you know, well, because of the newspaper. And they said, what, there's a newspaper as well? They didn't know anything about the print. Uh, <laughs> That's not surprising, yeah. actually. Yeah, It isn't. It isn't. But, of course, it does challenge your views about who your audience are, yeah. about your organization. I think it's just, it, again, it just pays to know the audience. Um, yeah. But, no, we, we like it that we obviously also always just constantly aware of how well or not that, branding travels like it it's very good in some ways to have like charts on twitter or facebook that have got the pink on it because people know ah that's an ft chart yeah but we found out for example that it didn't work so well on things like instagram so if you see the ft's mm. chart on instagram we've got a slight well, we've got a very different visual look and feel to the charts on instagram just because that platform works better with a slightly different approach right. to, to color and content I'm going. To, I'm going to put a link to that. Uh, it's what at Financial Times. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'll I'll stick that in the link here as well. Um, yeah. So so last last question around around this kind of topic. Um, so we've talked about how you use the visual vocabulary to kind of generate ideas and conversations. What do you do then if you're stuck? So I mean, I think that's really interesting. I mean, I think. When you're stuck, I mean, I'm, I'm sure everybody on this call and on the, on the stream here kind of has been at that moment where you're just like, oh, no, right? Like, what do I do? What do I do? Um, I, I think my experience is there's different ways of unpicking what's made you stuck, right? And for me, sometimes when you're stuck, it's very often because there's actually not a graphic to be made, Right. And so when I first arrived at the FT, someone said to me, oh, you're the new data viz editor. You're going to love my latest piece. I've got loads of charts in it. And I said, well, yeah, but I'm an editor too. So part of the editing process is, does this really need a chart? Or need a chart right? And so right. one of the things in the book that I write about is like, you know, there are some charts that are ridiculous because you can't learn anything from the chart above and beyond what's in the title of it. And, those are the design decisions where you probably got stuck and you should have just said no chart needed, right? Because it's not Mm. worth doing this one visually. In other cases, I think it's all about deciding priorities, right? And I think one of the things that I hope that comes through in the book is realizing that there's just no such thing as the perfect chart, right? Because everything is a trade-off decision. You can show this, but not this. You can show this and this, but not that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, or you can make this more important and this less important. So, um, one of the ways of getting unstuck, I think, is to understand, have I got a really clear sense of the priorities and what I'm trying to show here? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I used to like to think when it was editing, I could pick up like a, you know, a computer screen and, and kind of 
have a draft chart on it and you just shake that screen and say, right, anything that's not essential, imagine it falls off the chart. What are you left with? Right. Mm. Like and that idea of just shedding things that you don't need to prioritize the things that you think are important can, can sometimes mm-hmm. help. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is, it is difficult because it's just inevitable part of creative processes. Sometimes it won't work as easy as others. And you could iterate on these charts forever, right? And, and you know, never be done. So how do you how do you decide when something's good enough? Is it just because there's a deadline? What a story, that a question that is. I mean, so I mentioned I used to work at the UK Statistics Office, right? So yeah. that office does things like the census, which is every 10 years, right? So uh, moving from that organization to one where, hang on, you know, you've got an hour. Or, in an hour, right. <laughs> you know, it's got to be done. Um I think the thing, I mean, obviously it's not always like that because we have projects like the one I shared where we were working on that for a couple of months. So you have these kind of long-term projects and short-term projects. I think in both cases, um, you learn different things about your decision-making along the way. I I love, and I know there's several people in my team, we've talked about this, uh, love the challenge of that very quick deadline because it forces you to make decisions and stop sort of procrastinating Mm. about which one's better. Yeah. better which one's better and the way to do that is make the decision based on the best in, insight that you have at the time and then just look afterwards to see what would i have done differently right based on how the readers reacted to it for example um and so uh how do we decide when something's good enough when it when it meets that original question what do you want to show um, one of the things that we've sort of advised people when making graphics is the first thing you should do is write down that title, right? When it's a narrative chart, write the narrative down first, because that's the only way that you're going to be able to um, measure if what you've made is successful or not. Mm-hmm. Does it deliver on the promise that that title made to the reader? Um, so that's probably our most powerful kind of yeah for that i think that's uh, a recommendation i make to um, everybody that i teach is when when you're building a chart or dashboard just start with the title as a question what's the question you're trying to answer what are you trying to show and if you're putting something in there particularly in dashboard you know it's easy to put just lots of things in a dashboard just to fill space Um, but if it doesn't help answer that question then get rid of it uh, don't even think twice about it. Just get rid of it. And then you can always change the title later into maybe a narrative or, you know, something that doesn't have to remain a question, but if, because that's kind of the, f- you need to have a focus when you're building these things and it's some kind of question you're trying to answer. Right. And yeah, so, absolutely. yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to, I want to switch topics and get to your, to your Ted talk. Before I do that, for those of you that are listening to this as a podcast, we're talking about a bunch of links that we're putting in the chat. Um, I'll put those in the show notes. So just have a look down in the show notes and and I'll put those in there. Um, So I I watched your TED Talk the other day and it's quite funny. Um, So if anybody, uh, it was, how long ago is that? You look quite different. I think that was like 2016. I'm okay. definitely older and grayer. It's quite funny. Um, so I, I just have a few questions around this. How did you get into statistics? I know you were with the ONS and then you moved to the FT, but what's your background before that? So uh, it's a really good question. My, my undergrad is geography and I used to love 
cartography as well. That was like what I really was interested oh, yeah. in. You, you, you have that chart in the book about your uh, your your bicycle, um, yeah, you right. your bicycle rides or something. Yes, yeah, so I don't know. I was always quite capable. Yeah, yeah, I was quite capable as a child of uh, that was my teenage cycling. Uh, I, I can't match your Ironman uh, regimen, but I was always good on the data with the recording of my bikes. Um, yeah, so I, I always kind of liked that stuff. And when I joined ONS at the stats office, it was to to lead the cartographic team there, okay. doing GIS mapping and that sort of stuff. Right. And I mean, this was late 20th century, right? I am that old. So like the internet was just catching on and, and so on. Um, and at that time, I started doing a master's in GIS. Um, and I had this revolutionary idea for my master's thesis in GIS to ask the question, do we need GIS anymore? Which didn't go really well with my professors, but was actually a very practical question because what was happening at the time was the web was evolving very rapidly in a way that made it clear to me that visuals in general were going to get very exciting to make. Mm. Right. And, and and that separating things into what was a map and what was a chart. That was kind of at that time largely a thing dictated by what software were you you were using, right? Like, I, you know, you want a map, you're going to have to go over and use this software. Like, if you want to do mm. charts, you have to go over and do this. So at that time for my master's, I sort of said, well, actually, I think there's a whole load of stuff that's really interesting that's happening with JavaScript and scalable vector graphics that will allow us to do all this stuff. Um, and so I did that for my thesis and um, then came back to ONS and said, by the way, we should set up a team dedicated to this stuff, presenting statistics on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that kind of was my entry point. And the, the the really delightful thing about that period at ONS was just routinely getting to work with these real statistical experts who knew inside out everything to do with the data that ONS were publishing, kind of, and and all sorts of insights and things that were interesting about this data that you were just looking at it as a data biz practitioner thinking this is gold. Mm. Right? Like there's stuff in here that if we just reframed it in a different way uh, from, you know, I mean, I always sort of said at the time, I think the ONS website address was statistics.gov.uk. And I said, right, well, that's two of people's least favorite words in a URL right there, like statistics and gov, probably <laughs> no one's going to kind of. And then also dot UK. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely at the time at the time of uh, you know the scottish independence vote and brexit again like, <laughs> you know three words maybe but so so i sort of said you know i think we could do something with statistics here that unlocks it for a slightly wider audience if we start to just change the way that we're mm-hmm. contextualizing it and that might be to make it more visual to make it more personal and to make it more social and so the TED Talk kind of came out of a specific project that I did. It was one of the last things that I did at ONS where um, I'd spent a lot of time reading books by people like Daniel Kahneman, um, who um, is this fantastically influential um, uh, behavioral economist. And, um, and it, it got me thinking a lot about what we were doing wrong when we were communicating statistics because Kahneman points out in his research with people like Amos Tversky, um, people are terrible intuitive statisticians, right? People are not very good with statistics. And so when we publish statistics and just say, here's the numbers, it, it lacks the ability for people to sort of internalize that data and work out kind of how it reacts to them. 
And so one of the, and so Kahneman had done all sorts of things with just general stats, like in the book that, you know, thinking fast, thinking slow. There's lots of examples where he sort of says, people think this, but it's really that, right? Here's the gap. Um, and so I was really interested in a project at ONS where we could say, right, well, let's do that, but do it at a very local level. Let's ask people questions about their local area, because maybe maybe the problem is, like, how well do you know the UK? Well, you know, there's 65 million people, so maybe I don't know it very well. But if you asked it just about the neighbourhood, that might be more interesting. Um, so we did this sort of interactive quiz, like, how well do you really know your area? And it was just like a really simple data viz interface for sort of like, here's 100 people. How many of them in your area are Muslim? How many of them mm-hmm. own their own home? How many of them, you know, um, have qualifications or whatever? Um, and it turned out people were equally bad at that as well, right? Like that the local area still people had very, very different sort of misconceptions about. And it wasn't really to do with your level of education like I, I quizzed the national statistician on it and he got a terrible score for his own neighborhood right like which i thought was hilarious you know just it kind of showed how bad we were at this. they time. probably didn't think it was very funny <laughs> <laughs> well you know uh, uh, um we had some fun with it it was really good and and i th- i think the thing that was really interesting about that whole process was that we're so used to this sort of battleground around information and disinformation as it's playing out now and becoming remarkably cynical about the polarized world that that delivers us. I think the thing that that feels now very naive about that project that, that I referred to in the, in the Ted talk was that it, it basically just generated entertainment and fun, right? Like people were actually quite happy to share their ignorance and to show how, surprised they were by how far wrong they got some of these questions about their local areas and Mm. there's a part of me that wishes we could return to that place where you know the data becomes a source of illumination through sort of gentle fun and entertainment rather than the sort of the very sort of polarized use of data that we see now Mm. um, which is obviously you know shows you how long ago that that talk was in some respects is that quiz still available for the ONS? I, I, you know, I'm so annoyed about this that it was it was my the the ONS has replaced its entire website and the API that used that that, that quiz relied on. So unfortunately, right. the, the the quiz this is the, this is one of the reasons why I love having print available. Some of my work will always <laughs> be recorded now. Yeah, um, the quiz isn't available, but I think in the TED talk you get to see quite a few examples of it. Yeah. Yeah, you do. Yeah. And uh, you can always use that website that's like a time machine for the internet where you can go back and look at the ONS from 10 years ago or whenever it was, and you can see the quiz on there. So you can see some of it on there, but I think again, like the underlying database is gone. So right, right. it'd be interesting to see what people yeah. think. One of the things you talked about when you were you were mentioning, you know, some of the numbers that people might see in the quiz is it sounds like what the biggest thing that people that um that people lack is context for those numbers. Um, so, you know, if you just tell somebody, um, you know, there's 350,000 people that have uh, breast cancer in the UK. Okay. Is that a high number? Is that a low number? I have no idea. How does that compare to the rest of the world? And um, when, when you and your team are designing things, do you, a question I like to, to, when I do the training question I like to tell people to think about is, well, compared to what? So any chart you create, any number you put on a dashboard, you should always be asking compared to what? Um, So is that something that you try to emphasize at the Financial Times? Yeah, totally. Because, I mean, I think um, 
we talk about that in the in the book there's a line in there which kind of says that compared with what question is so important because you know five billion sounds like a big number unless you're talking about world population in which case you know that's decades and decades out of date right so compared with what i think the thing for us was in the world of journalism that context is kind of inherent in reporting because people think of that as the sort of angle right so what I mean by that is the context could be temporal, right? Compared with this time last year or compared with the last time we did this census or, the, you know, compared with a time element, or it could be geographical, right? Compared with our neighbor, right? Or, you know, compared with countries or cities that are similar, or it could be sort of rivals, right? Compared with our competitors, it could be like a sectoral market thing. Um, but you absolutely need that to establish context. And I mean, I actually think the context element to this is really interesting in that for a lot of news organizations reporting what is normal might not appeal to them but establishing what is normal is incredibly important for data viz right so you know you know every time i take a flight my mum insists me telling you know that i got there safely but she doesn't insist that with a car right like i can go off in a car right. and it doesn't matter even though that the car is hugely more risky than than the plane right yeah um, and that's just to do with kind of perception of what's normal or not and um plane crashes are not normal so they get reported more yeah and so one of the things i think with our data viz work at the ft is we don't want to give people the wrong context so very often what we're trying to do is answer that question compared with what by establishing that context, that baseline very, very clearly. One of the ways that we do that in the visual space is to just use hierarchy on the chart. So you put that baseline and that normal uh, kind of context into the background a little bit so people can see it, but that what you then report sits on top of it. Yeah, yeah. Even it could be something as simple as just a, a reference line across a bar chart or something like that to give people, you know, is it better or worse or is it increasing or decreasing? Yeah, I, I've actually put a, a link in the chat, um, mostly for you. These are some maps that I created that help show um, relationships at Facebook around America and how, um, since you uh, you know have the cartography background or GIS background, you 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 might like it. Uh, but it does give that context, even though it's just maps. So. Um, it, I thought you might like it, so I put it in there. Yeah, it looks um, great. Yeah. Um, so, but when we're talking about people being bad with numbers, how much of that comes down to our education system? I mean, I, I have my opinions about the UK ed- education system, especially compared to the US. Um, I think it's quite terrible, actually, uh, because, you know, in, in my opinion, kids don't really learn anything in secondary school in the UK. All they learn is how to pass a certain test because the schools get evaluated based on those test results. Um, So my kids get very frustrated with school because it's not interesting. It's not fun. The teachers actually aren't really allowed to teach, if that makes sense. Um, Do you think that's probably part of the problem is that we're not educating them on like, you know, like data, you know, you, you mentioned before, and I think it's in the book that, we're not educating people on data visualization or understanding data in, in general. So are, are, are we missing a trick by still teaching things the way we, that have always been done? Yeah. I mean, I, I think this is a really, there's a lot of complexity to unpick in this because I think some of it, 
we can certainly talk about education, I think, and and I, I will address those points in a moment. But also, I mean, as the stuff that sits behind that as well, like I say, the fact that we're not very good intuitive statisticians is probably not education's fault. It's the fact that we we tend to place a lot of value on personal experience rather than mm-hmm. aggregate an understanding of aggregate crowds, right? So so I think there's stuff behind that. I think within the educational context, I think it is there there clearly is a lot of things going on. And I don't think it's specifically you know UK related in, in the sense that wherever I go, for example, data viz is a really good example of this. When I say to people like, you know, what chart types can you tell me about? And people will say pi and line and bar. I'll say, right, when did you learn them? And they'll be like, well, at primary school, like we we had to do pie charts of like eye color and like yeah. height of children in the class on a bar chart. And I said, oh, that's yeah. great. You know, and then when did you learn your fourth chart type? And people just go blank, right? Like they yeah. kind of the whole chart education and data viz literacy kind of journey almost stops at that point for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And even those people who then do go on and do stuff, you know, they might become economists and like love scatter plots and all that sort of stuff. That's great, but they might not necessarily be taught about how to communicate that stuff to people who aren't economists, right? I think that's always been a problem, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that, that professions can get insular. Um, in the book, it was really interesting. There's a couple of things that we did. The FT takes its education program for schools really, really seriously. Uh, one of the things that we did was we sent a copy of the visual vocabulary to every secondary school in the UK as part of the FT for Schools program. I was really pleased about that because I think it ended up going out to all the geography teachers, actually. Um, and the idea was to kind of stick that up on the wall in every classroom or, you know, in every school and for uh, and for teachers to learn from it as well as the students, because that was one of the things I ended up interviewing one geography teacher for the book um, up in Scotland. And when we were talking, the thing that was really interesting. He's basically said, well, look, it's not just the kids that have got an education challenge here. It's the teachers as well, because yeah. if you think yeah. about what they've learned to to, to to the point that they get into the classroom to deliver, they probably haven't got the domain expertise on things mm-hmm. like statistical and critical thinking, visual communication and perception, and you know all of that sort of stuff that we know within the data viz community is really important. So I think it's a really it's a, the solution to this is multifaceted. Yes, it's about curriculums. Yes, it's about sort of not just teaching kids to pass exams and uh, and kind of you know improve the the st- you know the ironically improve the stats on on who's passing and and who's not um but it does require buy in from a whole group of people mm-hmm. right a whole lot of people um and that sort of stuff takes mm-hmm. a little bit of time i mean i do think we are seeing some signs of progress now right even when i look at the you know i've been because i've been because i'm so old i've been involved in things like recruitment for so long um, there is a noticeable difference in the skills that I'm of people that I'm interviewing yeah, now. I agree. Yeah, interviewing sort of fifteen, twenty years ago, you can kind of see there's a there's a massive jump in the people that I find myself talking to now. Where historically I'd have had to contextualise everything about why we're trying to do what we do now. They get it. They know why we're doing this for mm. the FD. They want to be a part of it, and they've learned some of the skills to get there. So, I I, I remain on the optimistic side of the trajectory is right, even if the pace of improvement isn't quite what we want. Mm. I guess, you know, there's a lot of bad things said about social media, but actually I bet that's one way that kids learn about data and 
and uh, statistics and things is because they're really concerned about how many times their their video on TikTok is seen and who has been seeing it and what are the demographics of those people and when are they looking at it and you know I guess and and a lot of that stuff is presented as charts in those tools so maybe they're kind of uh, maybe that's one of the reasons we're seeing this this big improvement could be yeah I'm just just popped into my head but yeah <laughs> yeah but it's certainly out there more and the other thing is is again you know the pandemic was horrible for all sorts of reasons but um as far as a data viz story is concerned it was probably quite successful because people were switching on the tv every night mm. and going on the social media and seeing visuals and charts being like used routinely right? yeah. Um, yeah. And, and people talking about data in a way that they hadn't before you know so um, so I think there is a there is a trend that we should sort of welcome broadly as yeah. long as it as long as we use it to not just tick the box. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you mentioned that uh, a lot of the charts went to geography teachers. That kind of makes sense because they're probably the most visual learners of all of the teachers uh, or yeah. visually and trained that way, too. I think the thing is, right, with journalism and to a large extent, academia have got a very similar history in the sense that they're largely tech-centric or have historically been very text-centric. You know, the first chart in the FT didn't appear properly for decades after the FT was first published, even though charts were already in existence. They weren't a part of the FT for a long time. Um, But similarly, I've talked to PhD students who've been told off for spending too much time on their graphics at the expense of concentrating on the tech. (laughs) Right. So there's these tech centric elements to these disciplines that we're sort of almost blindly battling against because it's part of the culture change and establishing a value for for what we do. Um, I do think with geography teachers, it's great because, like, it's quite difficult to be a geography teacher and hate maps. Yeah. (laughs) Because you know the inherent value of the vision. You know, I want to climb Everest. What do you want? A a written description of how to get there or. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the value of the visual has always been welcomed by the, geograph- the geographers, and so for me, that's a great in route to to schools. Conversely, I think something like maths is a bit more difficult because, like, stats is the part of maths that even mathematicians hate. Yeah, uh, because it's all to do with uncertainty and sort of, you know it's it's not got the precision of the rest of the mathematical field kind of welded into it and so so i think you know yes we love stats and maths but i think geographers are a very open bunch to, yeah yeah to the, to the way that we can use visuals i i hear a lot from people we interview that have you know masters and, and phds that they're they're really irritated with their education system because they don't get introduced to tools that can help them with their data analysis so you know we have them do applications in Tableau, but it could be Excel, whatever it might be. Um, and they're they're like, you know, I could have literally saved three quarters of the time I spent on my thesis just by ha- just by being able to create charts and graphs. Um, and it's it's just fascinating. My my son, um, my my son goes to university in the Netherlands studying computer science, and they have like uh, I think. Uh, one or two days worth of um, classes on, you know, uh, data visualization. And it's like, how is that, how is that even possible these days? And I guess it's because the professors don't know it either. So they just don't teach it. So we need to cycle through all of these tenured professors. Um, Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. 
this message from my son once. He was about 10 or 11, I think. And he, he texted me and said, Dad, I'm at, he said, uh, my teacher just said that Florence Nightingale invented the pie chart, but I told her she was wrong. Uh, I forgot the name of the person that you told me it was. And uh, and, and you let me know. And if it was really hilarious, actually, that, that, that <laughs> kind of the, the provenance of data visualizations origins ended up being a conversation in, in, in a sort of school setting. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, it, yeah, it's it's really amazing to see uh, <laughs> yeah. conversations appear on the curriculum. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to switch to I'm going to switch gears here, and uh, you know, hopefully, you have a few more minutes you can you can spend with me because I want to ask okay. you some of the fun questions. And hopefully, you didn't look at these. I'm sure you cheated. But, I, haven't, uh, I can guarantee you, I haven't looked at these questions. Okay. Well, the most important question is, what the heck is an OBE? <laughs> That's a very good question. Uh, so an OBE is, um, it, it's, uh, so let me explain what it stands for first. The, it's, it stands for the off, an officer of the order of the British Empire. So you ah, I didn't know officer uh, was part of that. Yeah. So the, right. there's something called the order of the British Empire, which is, a, which is a, an order of chivalry in the British honours system. And there are different ranks within it, ranging from sort of member through to officer, commander, and then um, if you if you get to the top of it, that's when you can call yourself sir, right? Like it's a, a knighthood right. at the top end of it. So uh, so the O is relatively junior in the designation. It's it's the second step on the rung, and I I got awarded that for services to official statistics, which was a nice way of saying. We really like the way that the data viz work at ONS has helped engage public okay. audiences. Right. So that's kind of the origins to it. The other way of looking at it is normally they dish these things out to civil servants when they're due to retire. And I just wondered if they were giving me an early message that they'd have yeah. enough. Please stop. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I like to think it's the former. Does, does the Queen actually give that to you? Or did she? Uh, so it's always given by a member of the royal family. Uh, so my my investiture it was Princess Anne. Um, okay, I don't know who Princess Anne is actually. Uh, so just the Queen, so it's Queen Elizabeth's daughter, and it was okay. a great the affair. Charles because, sister, right? The main thing with those things is you you get to meet a whole bunch of really interesting other people who've done amazing stuff. Like so somebody. Yeah. Somebody that was getting the award at the same time as me, she had just taught the women of Helmand province how to police the, the their towns, right? And I kind of said, and mm. she said, what did you do? And I said, oh, I made some charts. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, it, it felt a little, I felt Apparently a little. Apparently they like them, yeah. It, yeah. it sounds like hers had a bit more of like social impact, I guess, right? Yeah. Right, so, so, but you did meet these really great people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that's neat. Okay. What does your typical day look like? Wow. Um, it, it's a, it's generally a roller coaster. Uh, we have, um, I mean, like does I said. Ever, does it ever finish the way you think it's going to go at the beginning of the day? You know, sometimes yes. A lot <laughs> of times yes. But a lot of times no, right? Like, and, yeah. and I mean, I, I have to say my, my, my love, my, my, I loved my time at ONS, but I was really curious about how well, my data viz skills would adapt to working in a newsroom. And mm-hmm. of course, the thing was at that time in my career, it was quite a sort of, wow, I've never been in journalism before. I hope this works. Right. And so I kind of, I don't know if I told, and maybe I convinced myself at the start that I'd bed down quietly for a bit to work out how it all worked. And then, then I'd really start to have a look at it, but it didn't work out that way because within, 
within a few months, we had Brexit, Trump, COVID, war in Ukraine. And so you can imagine that in an organization covering the news, those events can change your day pretty quickly when yeah, they start to yeah. happen. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I, yeah. I bet. And how about um, work-life balance? How do you handle that? That's one thing I'm, I'm very... Um, I'm, I'm talking a lot of it, a lot about now because I've got another child coming soon. Um, and that's something that's going to be very important to me because I, I think I could have done, done it better in the past. How do you manage work-life balance? Uh, it's a really good question. And I think obviously the answer to that is that to some extent, it depends on your own family kind of setting and context. So mm-hmm. one of the things I really was appreciative of when I was a civil servant was when my son, so my son was born in 2000. So uh, my when I was, as well, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Is that, well. Yeah. So, so, you know, so back in the early 2000s, when I was starting my data viz work at ONS, one of the things that was great with them as an employer is they were happy to support me working at home a couple of times a week when it wasn't really regular for people. Oh, wow. Way back then. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so he would do like half days at a nursery and I'd look after him in the afternoon and then I'd do, I'd make up for that time with longer days in the office on the other three days of the week. Right. That was the first time where I realized the value of doing different things at different times in the week was a really great way of just planning your week. So for example, the, the mornings, two mornings a week at home with no children around and no office colleagues bothering me was a great time to just sit down and learn how to code. And I remember going really painstakingly through the SVG specification with no distractions. Like just, it was lovely to just have this time and to use it, knowing that there was a whole load of other stuff that I was going to have to do later in the week when I was in the office and to kind mm-hmm. of plan that. Um, and I think at that time, I felt like the, the the family balance wasn't suffering as a result because I was always there to go get him from nursery, at, you know, for the yeah. afternoon. And, and so I saw a lot of him and, and that worked really, really well. It just it just meant planning things out a bit in terms of what my week was going to look like. Mm-hmm. I think if my, if my son had been at that age and I was suddenly going to the FT in London, cause I don't live in London. So I've got a, a bit of a commute. Um, I'd have thought a little bit about whether that would have been the right move for me at the time as it is, because he's away at university. Um, uh, my, my kind of, my, my home situation is, is a little bit more flexible now than it used to be. But even so, the work-life balance is really important because I think um, that I went to this a session once where someone explained to me, even in the most fast-paced journalism, you've really still got to concentrate on making recovery an integral part of your mm-hmm. your kind of effort that you're putting in. Because you need to avoid burnout. To avoid burnout, right? Yeah. Like you can't just say, I'm going to keep working at full pelt and never have a way of building in some recovery it's got to be part of what you're doing and so i think we try to do that a little bit just organically at the ft anyway in the sense that within our team there are times when like i say we have these longer projects and deeper projects where maybe you're more control of timing things Mm -hmm. that need to be done more more at pace but we don't make the same people do that all the time necessarily so there's a bit more flexibility and how we organize that so that someone doesn't feel like they're constantly on the treadmill right. it is difficult because news is busy right like and it, it it's why we're in the the business is is to cover some of these kind of amazing stories using visuals and data it's kind of it's our passion um but i i'm like you in the sense that it's still important to me that i get out on my bike and 
run and kind of spend time with the family and to try and make sure that there's never a time where that's at risk of, of not happening. Yeah. Yeah. Who's been the most influential person in your career? That's a really good question. Uh, so I you think can only pick one. If I can only pick one, that's really tough. Oh, I, won't tell, I won't tell the other people. So <sighs> No. Right. So I'm not going to – there are there are people who will say people like Tufty were really important to them when I was getting into data viz. That, that oh, I'm thinking more about people you've worked with. Yeah, yeah exactly, right? Like so um, so there are people who kind of spark the seed, but then people that you end up working with and relying on to get the personal buy-in to make it happen for your career, right? And, and there's a couple of people uh, that I can think of. One person that I'm really glad that I've ended up getting to work with, who I think is relatively unsung in the data of his community, because his work was very early and very influential to me, was somebody called Andreas Neumann, who was doing some great work with interactive data visualization in the early mm-hmm. 2000s with some colleagues in Switzerland. And and just seeing people using new technology in amazing ways to do things that, you know, you'd never really thought were possible before. Andreas was like very open and sharing with what he was doing. He encouraged a small community to develop around the work that he was doing at the time. It helped organize conferences on interactive graphics mm-hmm. when those things weren't regular occurrences. So someone like Andreas was very important in me understanding how I wanted to push my career path towards data viz. Um, and then along the way at the organizations I've worked with, there's been some brilliant people who've helped champion what we've been doing. And I'm forever just amazingly thankful for their support along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's the biggest regret of your career? And if you could go back and change it, what would you do? Oh, yeah, that's a really tough question. Can I, I, I mean, Save the hard ones for the end. Yeah, that's right. So it's like it's just you and me, right? There's not thousands of people watching this stream or listening on the podcast. There's nine people. There's exactly nine people watching right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think the thing is, I wish. I think the thing that's really difficult now, and if your 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 eldest is the same age as my son, I think the really interesting thing now is like the pressure to know what you want to do and where that comes from. Mm. Right? Like, I despite doing a geography degree, I had no real concept of what I really wanted to do with it. I think people assumed that I was going to be a geography teacher or something, right? Because what else would you do, right? We'll get you the elbow patches and and, and that sort of stuff. Um, And I think if my regret is perhaps, it's got a slight silver lining, but the regret would be that in the early stage of my career, I spent a lot of time doing things that weren't what I loved because I right. didn't know what it was that I really wanted to do. And if you like, all of the data viz and journalism stuff ended up being almost an accident mm-hmm. out, of, out of the first proper job that I got after uni. But yeah. that was a good four or five years afterwards. So so I probably, I probably lost some valuable time in my 20s dithering about what I wanted to do. And if mm-hmm. I could have that time back, I'd probably be a better version of myself now in terms of what I've ended up doing. But if you if you didn't go through that kind of exploratory phase of what you wanted to do, do you think you'd actually be doing what you're doing, right? Because you you almost need to find out along the way what you don't want to do as well. Yeah, I think there's an element of that, and also, and I think this is going back to the education pro- problem in some respects. Like the internet didn't exist when I graduated. Yeah. So how is some how is my degree going to prepare me for a career where the the predominant platform that it uses the internet doesn't exist right right 
So, and I think that's a problem right now. Like, how do we educate people to know that what we teach them now is valuable in decades ahead rather than just right. the here and now? And I think that that's that's a really big challenge. Mm. Like, how can you how can you prepare someone for that future when you don't know what the next year is going to look like? Yeah, yeah. I guess it's it's one of the things I think about is like how important is formal education anymore? Um, so when we hire into the data school, we don't accept CVs or resumes because I don't really care. Um, I just want to know if you're going to fit in well with the team and can you do the job? Um, so, you know, we've had lots of people that don't have degrees that have come that have come through and been some of the best people. Um, and I, I wonder now if somebody, you know, well, I guess we're legally required to send our kids to to school. Um, but after after kind of secondary school, I wonder how what people could learn just by using YouTube, for example, to learn about a particular topic. I bet you they'd learn a lot more than they would in university and be easier for them to find what they're passionate about. Um, maybe it's an experiment we should uh, we should um, we can't take responsibility for those people's futures. But, you know, <laughs> I, mean, I, I think there's definitely we, we've just done some some cover of this, you know, the tuition fees in the US have been falling along with mm. declines in student numbers, because for all sorts of reasons, people are realizing that, I don't know, maybe having a degree isn't as special as it used to be. Or it's, debt. Quite, <laughs> it, it's quite expensive or very expensive, you know, and. So you're probably seeing a kind of slight shift in emphasis on over why why bother to do a degree in the first place. I I do think the sort of financial models for learning at universities have been particularly damaging to things like the arts relative to sciences, right? Like yeah. Where it's all about measured in the value of what I can of how I can repay this mortgage on my education that I've entered into. You yeah. Know? And and I hope people don't abandon their passions because of that right so yeah. it's probably a great thing that there are other routes that don't require degrees yeah yeah um i i think you wrote in the book didn't you about um i think it's oxford how how tiny the percentage of time is that they're actually spending with their with their teachers or their professors and for what they're paying i mean the, the value just isn't there um that was that's in like maybe the first chapter of your book i believe right i think i, I think the, there's a there's a there is a question about how do you measure the value of these things anyway, right? Like, cause it's a, it's a multi faceted thing. Um, and I, you know, another big regret, I did a computer programming course at university and I wish I'd paid attention because I ended up having to do it and learn it properly again for the first time later. And right. you know, again, mainly because I didn't necessarily see, you know, at the time, learn, you know, learning to program back then was like how to make a currency converter or an alarm clock. And I was like, well, I don't really need either of those things. Right? Yeah. Somebody said to me, learn to code because you can then program maps. I'd have been listening a bit more. Right? Like, right. So what, what's in it for me has always got to be a big consideration mm. you mm. decide to do when it comes to your education, I think. But, um, you know, and the other thing is just learning, of course. The, the learning how to learn and learning how to socialize with other people who are learning is also a very valuable skill. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I guess schools don't adjust to the individual needs. They they teach to the masses. So my my youngest son, for example, he started learning guitar when he was very young just by watching videos on YouTube. No formal instruction. He just found a couple teachers he liked. Um, he liked the songs they were playing, and that's how he learned to play. As soon as he got into more formal 
kind of music, he stopped enjoying it. And he doesn't, he, you know, he still does music for his GCSEs, but he doesn't enjoy it like he used to because now there's too much structure around it. And I wonder, you know, if, if, if he just continued with just learning the way that he, that he enjoyed learning, what would he be doing now? He'd be six years into playing guitar and he's only 14. So, um, you know, he could be making a lot of money on YouTube. So. <laughs> Well, yeah, it had more than nine people on the stream, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It went up to eleven a few minutes ago. So, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. No, it's it's true. And um, I think the other thing with that is, is that this goes back to our main thing with stats. For example, is a good question you ask mm. for a long time, for decades. Stats was just taught in that same way. Yeah, right? the rote learning of certain tools and techniques. You can't have fun with data until you've been through this rote learning pattern. Um, mm -hmm. I do like the way that things like data science have shaken things up a little bit. You know, you can, there's, there's, there's such, you know, and the emphasis is on talking and communication as much as it is about just rote learning routines and, and, yeah. and kind of statistical tests. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, enjoyment should be a part of the, a part of the learning experience. Yeah. So last question, and this comes from Andy Kirk. Um, so do, have you, um, do you ever listen to the diary of a CEO with Stephen Bartlett? Have I haven't. I've, okay. I am so bad at this because I, I have a one hour trip into London on the train and I should be the podcast, uh, uh an audio king and i'm not uh, because it's really I'm good just, you would like it yeah pick yeah. and choose kind of the topics but uh but it's really really interesting anyway one of the things he does at the end of every um at the end of every interview and i'm basically just stealing his idea um is he asks the uh the previous guest a question for the next guest but they don't yeah. know who the next guest is so wow. andy asked this andy was the last person i interviewed and so he didn't know that you were going to be next um so his question is what drills and this is a very andy question um what drills circumstances and situations do you put yourself in to be creative and help you become more creative Oh, that's a good question, Andy. Um, I uh, I would say, um, in terms of in terms of my day job, one of the biggest changes that I made was to get something that brought me back to using a pencil type thing as mm. opposed to tapping at a laptop, and just being able to scribble and scratch either on paper or on an iPad, free from constraints and in a free form space. Um, I use this thing all the time for that capturing ideas in a way that I can't mm -hmm. I, it, it, I, again another regret I regret that I stopped using pencils properly for probably two mm. decades in between school and suddenly realizing why that would be a really creative thing to use at work right yeah like that, that's probably a, just a it's a boring answer Andy sorry but it's probably well the yeah I mean I'm, I'm I'm the same way um do you use your I do you use an iPad with a, yeah. With a stylus yeah um yeah. I mean, I used to have brilliant handwriting and now my handwriting is so horrible because I never write anymore and I need to get myself back in the habit of actually writing. So for example, when I'm interviewing people, I don't write notes, I type notes and, yeah. you know, and they can hear you typing and, but I can do it faster and I can pay more attention to what they're saying rather than looking down at a piece of paper. So I guess there, there's trade-offs, but, uh, but um, I, mean, I, I did, um, I did six weeks with our parent company in Tokyo a few years ago and um, I wasn't long enough for me to start learning Japanese, but what I was really interested in was the beautiful calligraphic script, you know, like the kanji yeah. 
script. And so every day on my iPad, I'd set myself the task of drawing one of these characters really, mm. really nicely at the end of the day. And it was lovely. It was such a nice way of just disengaging from the day's work into a slightly yeah. different place in some ways. I loved I- it. I found a handwriting course on YouTube where you would print out these worksheets like you would get in, you know, first or second grade where you're literally, literally learning how to write like block letters with the dashed line going across and stuff. And that was even hard for me. So I was, I was, yeah, I gave up pretty quickly, which is, which is pretty sad. But if you're looking to learn a language, the best way to do it, and this is not an ad, but um, I use a, um, a language method called Pimsleur. I don't know if you've heard of it before, but it's, no. you're learning conversational a language. So no reading and writing. Basically, if you think about how somebody learns how to speak when they're, you know, going from when they're born, you learn how to speak before you learn to read and write. And that's the idea behind uh, Pimsleur. So I've learned it to, um, I've used it to learn. So I learned French in school, but I had to go to France for work when I worked for Coca-Cola. So I used Pimsleur to, to relearn French. Um, I had to go to Vietnam for a previous job. And I was going there. I knew I was going to be going there several times. So I learned Vietnamese uh, and now I'm learning German. So Eva, my partner is German. So I feel like, well, I probably should learn German. You know? So yeah, so I'm, I'm two, two and a bit years into my German, my German journey. So, uh, but yeah, anyway, if you're looking to learn a language, that's a great way to do it. And uh, I'll have to look it up. That yeah, sounds great. It's like 20, 20 pounds a month or $20 a month and you can get access to all the languages. It's, it's really, I mean, literally at the end of the first lesson, you're having a conversation. It's, it's fascinating. So anyway, um, so what question do you want to ask my next guest? Wow. Without knowing who it is. What, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I've got, I've got one. Um, so I think the question I would like to ask is when did you last change your mind about something important or something that you thought was fundamental? Oh, wow. That's, that's a really hard question. It is right. Because, you know, and the reason why I'm asking that is because we talk about the using data for evidence-based decision-making. Yeah. I, I kind of feel like we need to test ourselves out a little bit more here, right, in, in that what that means, it suggests that data should be encouraging us to make different decisions to ones we would otherwise make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It means correcting that bias or that preconception. Mm. I guess and it's it, kind of going against your intuition. Yeah, right. Like so so and if we don't say that, there's a kind of inherent assumption that everything I've believed in stays the same all the time and nothing's gonna change that. Well that doesn't sound very good for my the career that I'm in, which is all yeah. about trying to get people to see the world in different ways. Yeah. Um and so I mean I, I think everyone can point to different things maybe that they do, but I'd I'd just be curious to know from whoever it is, have you changed your mind about anything? Wow. That's a, that's a really good question. So um, I will unpack that with the next guest. Uh, but Alan, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a great conversation. It just, uh, I mean, it feels like we could go on for hours and hours, but I'm sure we both have lots of work that we're missing out on right now. But this yeah, is way no, more fun than work. It so, is indeed. It, yeah. It's an absolute pleasure, Andy. We'll have to get you over to the FT again soon. It's been too long. I live up north of Newcastle now, so I need a bit more planning. So okay. Next time you're in town. Yeah. Um, let, let us know. It'd be great to see you. Sounds good. All right. I'll talk to you later, Alan. Thank you very much. Take care.